messages have been, if you know, you know. And today, the final message is just going to be this. If you know what Jesus said and did, then you know what you should say and do. It's just that simple. The Bible says that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And what that means to me is that I am trying to act like Jesus. I'm not trying to act like a a, a cool pastor. I'm not trying to act like some influencer. The role model, the example is Jesus. Because anything less than Jesus is also less than perfect. And so when I am trying to point my life at an objective example of how I am supposed to act towards people and how I am supposed to respond in certain situations, I am not looking at anyone or anything except for Jesus Christ. That is it. He's the one. That's it. There is no other. There are no other role models. If they are not Jesus, they are not it. Can I get an amen from you this morning? Can you turn to somebody and shake them and say, say amen louder. 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 So, real quick. Does anybody in here know what an ambassador is? An ambassador. Raise your hand. If you know, I'm not going to make you answer, all right? This isn't going to be one of those minute, like, times in school. Like, you know, where you're like, the teacher's like, do you know what the Pythagorean theorem is? And you're like, yeah, I know what the Pythagorean theorem And then the teacher's like, cool, Johnny, tell us. And you're like, oh, I was just trying to impress this girl. <laughs> like, I don't really know what the Pythagorean theorem is. A squared plus B squared equals? All right, that's easy. That's easy. But do you know what an ambassador is? Raise your hand. You know, tell us. No, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. An ambassador is a representative of a country or a company or a brand with the full backing of that country, company, or brand's authority. So if the French ambassador comes to America and they are speaking to our Congress or they are speaking to our House of Representatives, they are speaking with the authority and the weight of the French government. So this ambassador cannot be a fool. This ambassador cannot say stupid things or do stupid things because what he does, France does. What he says... France says. There are also brand ambassadors. Have you ever heard of a brand ambassador, right? So like there are different brands like Nike and Adidas and Gucci and like they have brand ambassadors. I am telling you right now, none of those companies are calling me up and asking me to rep their gear. I'm here. I'm waiting. My phone is on, right? I don't know if I'd wear Gucci. I don't know if I... Prada? My wife's like, I would. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But like Nike isn't calling me up at six feet tall, 40 years old, going like, I need you 
to wear our basketball shoes. We've just seen you out on the court. And when people see you wearing Nike, we feel like they would be inspired to buy Nike. Nike's not having that conversation with me, right? Like Nike's not like, bro, your skills are on another level. You are, you are the new Michael Jordan. No, I, no, I'm not. I, I, I think it's important for us to understand this idea of ambassadorship because with ambassadorship comes privilege and authority and weight. You know what I'm talking about? Like being an ambassador is like, it's like an honor. Like if Nike wants you to wear their stuff, they're not just, they're not just like telling you, man, we, we think our shoes would look good on you. They're, they're also acknowledging that you have a skill set, that you have value and worth to them as a company, that they believe that you in their product could actually advance the kingdom of their company. Are you, are you seeing this? Are you hearing this? Are you understanding the weight of ambassadorship? Okay, so now we get to 2 Corinthians. Let me talk to you a little bit about the Corinthian church. Paul actually wrote three letters to the Corinthians. What we have in the Bible are his final two letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. I'm not saying that to confuse you. I'm just saying that to say that Paul actually wrote a lot of letters to the Corinthian church. You want to know why he wrote a lot of letters to the Corinthian church? Because they were jacked up. They just needed help. They were, they like, they just messed up quite a bit, right? So like the, like if you were to read first Corinthians, you would actually start to realize pretty quickly that this is a letter of rebuke to the Corinthian church. And it's funny because in first Corinthians, we actually have the love chapter, Right? The love chapter, which gives us the objective definition of what love is, right? We, we, we actually find in 1 John that it says that God is love. And the, you know that in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually uses the same word for love in 1 John that he uses in, in 1 Corinthians. And it's this agape love. And, and so we actually understand what love is. We understand that the Bible has actually defined love by saying that God is love. And when he says in 1 Corinthians, love is patient, he's actually saying God is patient. When he's saying love is kind, he's actually saying God is kind. When, when he's actually saying love is long-suffering and keeps no record of wrongs, he's actually saying God is long-suffering And God keeps no record of wrongs. And do you want to know why Paul is writing that to the Corinthian church? He's not saying that to make them feel better. He's saying that to the Corinthian church because they were actually being unkind. They were being unloving. They were not long-suffering. They did keep records of wrongs. They were cussing each other out. They were doing some of the most dumb things that you could possibly do. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually getting really upset with the church because he's like, listen, you are acting like idiots. And you are being false representatives of Jesus Christ. And people are looking at you, calling yourselves Christians, and they don't want anything to do with Jesus because of all of the foolish things that you are doing. 
Like, y'all need to quit sleeping with each other in the church and your family members. Like, messed up stuff in the Corinthians. Like, they were doing messed up stuff. You guys need to stop lying. You need to stop stealing from the offering pot. You need to stop doing this and that and the other things that are making Jesus look absolutely horrific to the people around you. First Corinthians is actually a letter of rebuke where Paul has to reset this church and be like, okay, let's go over this again. And then you get to second Corinthians and something has happened in between first and second Corinthians. The Corinthian church has actually grown. They have spiritually matured. Paul writes a letter of encouragement to them. He's like, I'm so encouraged. And actually, in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says these words. I really hated writing that first letter to you. He's like, but it had to be done. (laughs) Because God disciplines everybody that he loves. (laughs) Right? But now that you're doing good, proud of you. Discipleship hurts sometimes. And if you want to grow spiritually, you have to be willing to go through a pruning season. Don't think that every moment of discipleship is going to make you feel good about yourself. We are calling you up, not calling you out. (laughs) All right. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going on about the responsibility of the Corinthian church. And he says something incredible to them. He, He says, I want you to understand that you are ambassadors of Christ. Wow. Paul is saying that there is something in the Corinthian church that Jesus could use to advance his kingdom. He is saying to the people of Corinth and to you and me today that there is weight and authority that exists within us that God believes he could use to advance his kingdom. Jesus wants to privilege us by making us his brand ambassadors. Nike might not be calling you. Gucci might not be calling you. But Jesus has called you. He has said, I believe in you. I want you to put on these new garments of praise. I want you to rep my name to your school and to your family, to your community, to the city of Chicago, and to the rest of the students in Illinois. I want you to wear my brand. I want you to be a Christian. And I trust you with that. Here's how Paul puts it. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, 11. It says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord. This word fearful means full of awe. Like we're just in awe of who God is and what he has done. And not only that, but we are fearful because we also know what God is capable of. Right? Creator of the universe, spoke stars into existence, also talks to us. That's a moment of majesty. Amen? Okay. We understand that our fearful responsibility to the Lord. We work hard to persuade Other people. God knows that we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we're we're giving you a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. Okay, so God says that having a sincere heart is actually more powerful than having a spectacular ministry. 
It's about the inside, not the show. Brand ambassadors are really obsessed with the show in the world, but to be a brand ambassador of Christ, he wants you to have a sincere heart. Okay, okay. If it seems we are crazy, it's to bring glory to God. Amen. And if we are in our right minds, then it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love compels us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Jesus Christ. And God has given us this task now of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Praise God. Praise God. Your sins aren't counted against you. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Listen to this. So now... We are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. In order to be an ambassador of Christ, you must accept this incredible gift of God and then not ignore your responsibility to show other people this incredible gift of God. You are called to be Christ's ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ. So in order for us to understand what it means to represent Christ well here on earth, who do we look at? Jesus. Jesus. Amen? All right. I need you to turn to somebody, and I need you to shake them and be like, I need you to wake up right now. Shake the bag. Shake the person. Do some jumping jacks. This is, I mean, like, wow. Hey, hey, can I say something? Listen, I might be a a boring preacher, but I just read, like, some of the most unbelievable scripture in the world to you. Like, I've just read, like, this overwhelmingly beautiful scripture that wraps you in identity and gives you purpose. And y'all are like, mm, amen. Mm. Acting like a Southern Illinois church in here. I thought I was preaching the gospel. No, I offend you. I meant it. Full offense. Come on, y'all. This is good. All right, I know you're tired, though, so there's grace. There's grace. There's grace. There's grace. There's grace. There's always grace. 
I want to look at, I want to look at three moments in scripture, just three moments in scripture where Jesus had interactions with people. And I want you to apply the interactions of Christ to your own life so you know how to interact with other people who are in similar situations. And this is going to be incredibly revealing. I promise to you. Okay. First of all, if we want to be an ambassador of Christ, we have to love sinners. Jesus loved the sinner. And there is no beautiful, more beautiful moment in Scripture where we see that Jesus loves the sinner than when Jesus loved this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The story is found in John chapter 8. And it says this, as he was speaking at the temple, the teachers of the religious law and and the Pharisees brought out a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. They put her in front of the crowd, fully intending to embarrass her and fully intending to mock her. This woman was a sinner. She was caught in the very act. She was busted. She was caught red-handed. The guy was too. Where's he? I'll preach that. But this is a patriarchal society. And they're just going to punish the woman because it's stupid like that. Okay? They say, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman right here, was caught in the act of adultery and we dragged her out here by her hair and we threw her in front of this crowd naked and and mocked her and humiliated her a little bit to put you on the spot. The enemy will always try to humiliate you to put Jesus on the spot, but you know that Jesus will always get the upper hand in your life. And instead of being humiliated, you will end up redeemed. Okay, okay, I'm gonna stop. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we need to kill her by stoning her to death. What do do you think we should do? What do you think, Jesus? What do you think we should do? (laughs) Okay, they were trying to trap Jesus. I love when men try to trap God. Stupid. All right. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus did not answer them. Immediately, so as ambassadors of Christ, we are not reactive. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, something that's incredibly powerful to me in this moment is that this sinner is brought before Jesus, and in a gospel centric action, Jesus did not stay above her. He came down to earth to meet the sinner. He stooped down and he starts writing in the dirt. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say what Jesus wrote in the dirt. He could have been writing some Old Testament law to correct them because they were pulling it out of context. They could have, he could have been writing the names of all of like the Pharisees and like what prostitutes they were visiting. He could have been writing down their sins. He he, he could have just been writing, Jesus was here. We don't know. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. What we do know is that this is 
is that as he writes in the dirt, the Pharisees start chirping at him. And they, they say this, like a bunch of mouthpieces. They're like, they kept demanding an answer. So he stands up again and he says, all right, you want me to enact the law against this woman, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And they're just standing there like, okay, well, we ain't about to sit here and say that we've never sinned. And then Jesus just starts ignoring them again. And he stoops down to this woman because she is more important at this moment. And he starts writing in the dust again. When the accusers heard this, this word accuser here is specific because the word Satan in the Bible, the Satan means the accuser. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. In other versions, it says, nowhere are my accusers, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. You know, one of the most powerful moments in this story is when Jesus asks this woman who is caught in the act of adultery and she is staring in the eyes of a teacher, of a rabbi, of the son of God. And Jesus is like, where are your accusers? And she looks at Jesus and she says, nowhere. Ambassadors of Christ, I want you to hear this right now. When the world sees you, do they see an accuser or an advocate? Because when this sinner saw Jesus, she said, my accusers are nowhere and he's right there. When she looked at Jesus, she never saw an accuser. She saw an advocate. Jesus advocates for the sinner. Now, I will tell you this because we need to be careful here with this scripture. Jesus said this as he was standing back up, symbolic of his lordship, not accusing her, but advocating for her. Also, symbolizing the power that he has to advocate for her. But then he follows it up with this sentence, you will go and sin no more. Advocacy actually leads people to be compelled to sin no more. It's actually the accusatory, legalistic foolishness that we wrap ourselves in by being judgmental to people that causes them to entrench themselves in sin and continue to sin. But this advocacy actually gives people an idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So instead of attacking, Jesus advocated. So if we want to learn to be ambassadors of Christ, number one, we must love the sinner. We must advocate for the sinner, and we must learn to attack the sin. 
The second story that I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by in the life of Jesus as it applies to being an ambassador of Christ was Jesus' interaction with the Romans. It just intrigues me because the Romans were an occupying force. The Romans in Israel were thugs, right, Christina? And I asked my wife because she is way more biblically literate than I am. No, it is true. No, it's okay. No, it's... Okay, I'm told I can't sing. I'm told I can't preach. Get out of here. But where I am weak, he is strong. All right, you hear that? That was some, that was some good. I, I like actually, I use that a little bit, a little, little vibrato. Got that. The Romans were jerks. They were an occupying force. So they come into Israel. They start tearing things up. They start beating people up. They kill people left and right. They rape. They pillage. They steal. And not only that, but they recruit other Jewish people to become tax collectors. And tax collectors are so hated by the Jewish people that as Jesus is actually talking about sinners in the Bible, he sometimes says, and you will notice this in the gospel, where he goes, sinners and tax collectors. Like, you'll just notice that. They're just lumped in, but they're like a category of their own because they're so despised. And why are they so despised? Because they have attached themselves to the Roman occupation and not the Jewish legacy, right? So, like, you have to understand that the Romans are political enemies of the Jews in every sense of the word. Like, their ideology is, is at odds with the Jewish ideology. Their philosophy is at odds with the Jewish philosophy. Their system of government is at odds with the Jewish system of government. They are just enemies in every sense of the word. And here you have, in Matthew chapter 8, this Roman centurion coming up to Jesus and asking Jesus to heal his servant. This Roman centurion who is in charge of 100 officers. 100 officers that are doing their very best to make life in Jerusalem very difficult for the Jewish people. Here's the story. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. Like right off the bat. Jesus right off the bat said, okay, I'll come and heal him. An enemy of of the Jewish people. (laughs) Like, Like Jesus grew up watching the Romans like smack people around and, 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 and thug people around and steal from them. And Jesus, instead of like lecturing this Roman official, instead of giving him like three points on like how the government should be run, like Jesus, instead of like posting on social media and be like, you guys are not going to believe who asked for my help today. <laughs> 
instead of making it political, instead of making it philosophical, instead of making it me versus you, you versus me, God doesn't see a political enemy. He sees a child of his. And he's like, all right, let's go. But the officer said to Jesus, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go, right, Izzy? Or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. They jump. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, and this is amazing because you know who's following him? A bunch of Jews that hate Romans. And he turns to all of these Jews who are probably like, Jesus, don't help him. Not not that guy. Look how dumb he looks with his dumb helmet. You know what his political views are, Jesus? Like, you know that this guy doesn't believe the same thing that we believe do you, unbelie- do you believe that like their system of legislation is so broken and corrupt? And like Jesus turns to these people who are following him and he says this, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles are going to come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and feast in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus told his Jewish followers that, it rocked them. They were like, what? I thought only people like us got to follow you, Jesus. I thought only people that believed the same way that I believe got to follow you, Jesus. I thought it was only conservatives. I thought it was only liberals. I thought it was only this kind of belief system. I thought it was only people of this ethnicity that got to follow you, Jesus. But you're saying all the ethnicities, all of the political spectrum, you're saying all of us get to follow you? And Jesus is like, yup, all at the table of Abraham. All I'm asking them to do is follow me and make me the priority, make, them the, make me the Lord, not their politics. You understand that I can redeem anybody, anybody that I want to, anybody. And so it's really crazy to me because ambassadors of Christ, instead of hating, we have to heal. Jesus didn't hate this man. He healed this man. Now, I don't know who your enemies are in school, politically. Like, man, it is just charged out there, isn't it? I mean, like, all those liberals, those leftists, all those conservatives. Those fascists, look at this organization, look at that organization, look at these thugs who are occupying this, look at these people who are doing that, I just hate them and I hate what they stand for. I'll share the gospel with anybody, but them, mm, I don't know. And instead of hating, maybe you should heal because as ambassadors of Christ, you are not trying to widen the divide, you're trying to bridge it. And that's what Jesus does with this Roman officer. Instead of hating, Jesus healed. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, you go back home because you believed it. It happened. And his young servant was healed that same hour. I bet you that Roman officer was changed. I bet you that Roman officer, he went home and he's like, man, Caesar is not a god. Caesar couldn't have done that. But Jesus, 
That's who I'm following now. The third story is this. There's this woman, and she's an outcast, and her story can be found in Matthew, but I like her story better in Luke because Luke is a brilliant writer, and Luke is just more detailed than Matthew and Mark, right? He just is. Matthew and Mark are like, here's what happened. Luke is like, but here is also what happened. <laughs> Luke is just, Luke, Luke just, Luke doesn't leave it out, man. Luke is the long-winded one. <laughs> There's this woman, and uh, she has an issue of blood, the Bible says. So I'm going to be raw with you right now. Uh, She was on her period for 12 years. Yeah, I know, ladies. I got a a wife and a daughter. Listen, that's not comfy. That's not a fun day. That's so much ibuprofen. That's so much all of it. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. Like, I get it. And, and for those of you guys that are in here right now, you exist because periods exist. Okay, so chill out. Chill out. Okay? P- period. <laughs> that was asinine. All right. Here's the, here's the story. This woman, Jesus is on the other side of the lake, and the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, and he, and he pleaded with Jesus to come home with him. My only daughter, who is 12, is dying, Jesus. And as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. The crowds were pressing in. Everywhere there are people around Jesus. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. And she could find no cure. She could find no, she could find no cure. She could find no relief. Now, for those of us here in modern times... We're like, man, that alone for 12 years would be rough. But let me explain why culturally it was even more significant for this woman. You have to understand that any bleeding at all, if a man was cut, if a woman was on her period, if somebody is coughing blood, that they would be considered ceremonially unclean. Now, before you get all up in arms and say, well, that's sexist, yada, da, 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 please understand that this is ancient times and they don't have the medical advancements of technology that we do today. So they looked at blood a little bit differently than we do today. Okay? So, like, just understand that. Like, this isn't actually dumb. Okay? And, and so this woman is actually not just on her period for 12 years but she is also ceremonially unclean for 12 years. And in Jewish tradition, according to Jewish law, if this woman were to go into a city to purchase something from the market, if she was just trying to get herself some food, she would be allowed to do it. But everywhere she walked, she would have to say, unclean, I'm unclean. Unclean, 
And you want to know why she had to do this? It's because according to Jewish tradition, that if somebody or something that was considered ceremonially unclean touched you, you also became ceremonially unclean. And so this woman, out of respect for the Jewish law, would be walking around saying, I'm unclean. Unclean, just, just trying to go down this aisle. Like, if y'all are in the chip aisle, I need to get some chips. And I'm unclean, so y'all need to move. All right? Unclean. That's annoying. Has this woman been hugged for 12 years? Has this woman been shown affection at all? And in the Bible indicates that she is desperate. So I'm just like, the desperation is real and raw. It's not just because she's been uncomfortable and needs some ibuprofen for 12 years. It's because she is unclean and she's tired. Does she have a husband? Does she have kids? Does she have family? Is anybody helping her out? And so here you have Jesus with Jairus. And who is Jairus? Jairus is, he's a priest. He's a leader of the local synagogue. He's the leader of the local synagogue that this woman with the issue of blood would have been going to if she were ceremonially clean. So Jesus is walking down the road with Jairus. So she sees Jesus, but she also sees Jairus. And she's like, well, he knows I'm unclean. And not only that, but there's this huge crowd around Jesus. Well, I've been to doctors. I've tried essential oils. I've tried all of this stuff. And it's not stopping my issue, but Jesus, I heard, can heal. But there's all these people that are pressed in around him, and I can't get to Jesus without breaking the law. And Jairus is right there next to him. So if I get to Jesus, I'm going to have to deal with Jairus. Am I going to be punished for this? Am I putting my life on the line just to try this thing? She was desperate enough to even try that. So the Bible indicates that she crawls through the crowd. It says, coming up behind Jesus... She touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Praise God. It stopped immediately, immediately. And then in one of the funniest moments of scripture, Jesus is like, who touched me? Understand the scene. Everybody's touching Jesus. (laughs) Like everybody. Pressing up around him. And his disciples responded. Like Peter said, Master, uh, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. It says that in God's word right there. Like Peter's like, uh, Jesus, everybody. <laughs> it's disgusting. Like I'm actually need some Germex right now. <laughs> like, Who touched me? Jesus asked. And then everyone denied it. <laughs> That's the dumb part. Not me. (laughs) I didn't do it, Jesus. Like, I wonder how Jesus asked the question. For everybody in the crowd that's touching Jesus, how did Jesus ask the question in that moment? Who touched me? (laughs) And everybody's like, not me, son of God. (laughs) 
Run me. <laughs> Peter, uh, master, this whole crowd is touching you. <laughs> but Jesus said, no, 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 no. Somebody deliberately touched me. Somebody touched me with intentionality. Somebody was trying to get something from me. Somebody understood who I am. They deliberately came to me and they touched me seeking something from me. Somebody was desperate enough to get something from me, to draw something from me, who touched me. For I felt the healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and she fell to her knees in front of him. And then the whole crowd heard her explain why she touched him and that she had immediately been healed. Here's what happens. This woman touches Jesus. Jesus, who touched me? Peter, everybody's touching you. Everyone's also denying it. Take your pick. This woman is hiding. And the Bible indicates that she is trembling. Why is she hiding? Why is she trembling? Because in order to do what she just did, she broke the law. And Jesus is looking at her, and the disciples are looking at her, and Jairus is looking at her. She's healed. And she's just, she's just scared to death. How many people walk into our churches looking for Jesus to touch them, but they are scared to death of everybody that's surrounding Jesus? How many people are walking into our youth ministry and they are just like unclean, unclean, unclean. I don't know if I want to approach Jesus because everybody around Jesus knows my reputation. But I'm really desperate right now. Unclean, unclean, unclean. I wonder how many kids go to your high school, but they know that you're around Jesus. So they don't approach Jesus because they feel like they'd be breaking some kind of law by doing that. Or they feel like they don't deserve to get close to Jesus because they couldn't possibly do that. If we want to be ambassadors of Christ, we must learn to love the outcast. And I just think what's really powerful in this moment is that instead of fearing contamination, Jesus showed compassion. I want you to notice something, and this is theologically rich. The reason that this woman could not approach other people is because according to Jewish law, if she was unclean and she touched somebody, they would become unclean. But isn't it powerful to note that when she touched Jesus, Jesus did not become unclean, but she became clean. Who are you in here that you think that by getting in proximity with Jesus will make him feel disgusted? You don't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes you clean. I don't know how long you've been dealing with what you've been dealing with. It could be 12 years. It could be 15 years. Some of y'all aren't even that old. But I'm just saying, it doesn't matter what your life has attached itself to. If you get in proximity of Jesus, you are not going to put that on Jesus. Jesus is going to put his righteousness on you. 
Jesus loved the outcast. Can I get the worship team to come back up? So here is the incredible thing. It says that she was immediately healed. And then Jesus looked at this woman and he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He called this woman who is scared and trembling to the point where she was hiding from everybody or trying to. He looked at this woman and called her daughter. This outcast. Maybe she hasn't been touched. Maybe she doesn't have family. Maybe it's because she was considered unclean. But Jesus, for the first time, gives her a term of endearment according to the original language. This was a term of extreme affection. You are my daughter, and I love you so much. You know, my kids, when they were little, they would get messed up and sloppy. I mean, just gross. Like babies, I love them. They're so cute, but they are also so gross. Every parent of a baby in here said amen. They're just gross. They make up for it by being so cute, but they are so gross. I remember my daughter, Chloe, I had her on my shoulders, and we were in Walmart. And uh, we're, like, bouncing around, and she's like, yeah, that is fine. It was great. She's on my shoulders. And she goes, Dad, I don't feel so good. And before I could re- I know what that means. Like, before I could react, before I could do anything, she crowned me. It was Nickelodeon. It was a, like, on my Like, every horror scene you have ever seen in your life where, like, I mean, I got crowned in vomit. Crowned in it. I mean, like, the, like a chunk was, like, like, slow rolling down my face. Boop, boop, boop. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't take my daughter and, like, toss her. I was in the line at Walmart. This was very public. Everybody was like, oh, <laughs> and it stunk. It was like bile vomit smell. Like it was bad. It smelled like all of it. It smelled like all of it. And babies don't even eat good things. They eat like crap, like, like hot dog and Funyun vomit. Like it was disgusting. And so like, and so like, I have, I have this vomit and I pick her up and I'm like, and I, and I hold her close to me. And I'm not worried about the mess that she has created on me. The first question I asked is, baby, are you all right? And she goes, yeah, dad, I'm good now. And I took little Chloe, Chloe, I hope I'm not embarrassing you wherever you're at. I took little baby Chloe and I, I brought her to the bathroom in Walmart, which is ceremonially unclean, by the way. And I put her down on the sink And I'm not berating her. I'm like, you puked on my head. You embarrassed me in front of everybody. I just started cleaning her up and she's crying. And I'm like, baby, I love you. It's okay. Baby, I love you. It's okay. I'm going to clean us up. Jesus will take your mess. Jesus will put you back up on his shoulders again. Jesus will carry you around. Jesus will clean you up. He knows that you're not perfect. He knows that you've been digesting some things that you shouldn't be digesting. And when you get close to Jesus... You just kind of puke some of that stuff up because it has to come out. How am I making that a spiritual point? I don't know, but I am. 
But he's going to take you because he's a father and he's going to look at you and say, daughter, you're clean. Go in peace. You can go in peace now. It's all right. I added one more to this. And this is how we're going to close today. Because tomorrow is Easter. And P. Joey talked about it last night and he inspired me like he always does. There's two thieves that are on a cross with Jesus. Jesus is going through some of the most excruciating and agonizing pain, the most excruciating and agonizing pain of his life. He is mid-crucifixion here. Do you know, and my wife, my wife, I'm going to give credit to my wife on this one because she, she actually looked into this. She looked into the science behind this. You know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, the Bible says that he was praying so fervently that he was actually sweating drops of blood. You want to know why that's so incredible? And, and again, all credit to my wife for looking this up. Is because science says that when we are in moments of extreme anxiety, distress, or fear, and we are in moments of extreme fight or flight, blood does not go out to our extremities. Blood actually goes into our extremity, into our heart. It goes into our vital organs to sustain us and to protect ourselves. That's why when your adrenaline starts kicking, your fingers start feeling numb and your your extremities start getting a little cold and you start to shake. Why? Because your blood is moving into you. But the Bible says that in Jesus' moment of great distress, in Jesus' moment of extreme anxiety, his blood was actually pouring out of him. That Jesus loved us so much that he wasn't selfish with his own crucifixion and imminent death. He was still thinking of us to the point where his blood was starting to be poured out for us in the moment of his distress. That's crazy. And so here you have Jesus and he is on the cross and he's in between two thieves. Now tradition will tell us that the names of these thieves, they're not mentioned in the Bible, but we, we, we know through Josephus and we know through some ancient texts that the names of these thieves were Gestas, who is the bad one, and Dismiss was the good one. Dismiss. And here's the crazy thing. Dismiss is on the cross and he's asking Jesus to consider him for heaven. A sinner deserves to be there. And I think it's so powerful that while Jesus was going through this excruciating moment, that he was still considering this guy's request. Because if I'm up on that cross and somebody starts a conversation with me, I'm going to be like, are we talking right now? Are we talking right now? Are we doing this here? Like, we're, bro, we're dying. But Jesus is an inward with his blood. He is outward with his blood. And so I think as ambassadors of Christ, instead of ignoring dismiss, Jesus includes dismiss. And I don't mean to get cheesy here. Maybe I will. Because the word dismiss in Hebrew does not mean to dismiss somebody. 
but I'm going to use it because I still think it's powerful. Jesus did not dismiss, dismiss. I don't care how stupid that sounds. Jesus isn't dismissing you. You might have been dismissed your whole life. That might be your identity. But if you would just ask Jesus to include you, he will not ignore you. He will not dismiss you. He will consider you. And the beautiful thing about this is that this man dismiss did not want to be taken down and put back on earth. He asked Jesus to be taken up instead. Take me up with you. One thief was saying, take me down. And the other thief was saying, no, take me up. Because this world has nothing for me. In this world, I'm a thief. In this world, I'm dismissed. In this world, I'm ignored. In this world, I'm crucified. Jesus, I will take up this cross and I will go up with you. Will you bring me to paradise? And Jesus is like, oh, surely you are absolutely coming with me. Students, if you are to be ambassadors of Christ, I am asking you to love the sinners. I am asking you to love your enemies. I am asking you to love the outcast. And I am asking you to include the dismissed. Can you stand with me? You want to know why I'm asking you to do those things? Because there are those of you that are in here today and you were the sinner. There are those of you who are in here today and you were the enemy of God. There are those of you who are in here today and you were the outcast. There are those of you that are in here today and you were the dismissed, the ignored, and the abandoned. And if Jesus loved you, you get to love them. What did Paul say? He said, do not get this incredible gift from God and then ignore it. I want you right now in this moment to respond in one of two ways. I want you to worship God, yes, no matter what. But I want you to think of this If you were the person that Jesus needs to respond to, if you've been holding out all weekend and this message finally made clear to you how much Jesus loves you, I'm going to ask you to find a leader and have them pray over you so that you can come into good graces in the salvation of Jesus Christ. But more specifically, and I think this will be most of you, I think everybody in this room needs to be responding to this. I want you to start thinking of the outcast. I want you to start thinking of your enemy. Why do you think I preached on forgiveness last night? So that I could tell you today to start thinking of your enemies. I want you to start thinking about the ones who have been dismissed and ignored. And I want you to start thinking about the sinners. And I want you to pray for them right now. Plead the blood of Jesus over them. Get that person in your head. You turn around in your chairs. You come to this altar and you start begging God for him. I'm going to teach you an old school term. It's called divine appointment. When I first got saved a while ago, I was asking my pastor, how can I witness to my friends? And my pastor looked at me, Doug Harris, who used to be a pastor at Belmont Assembly. He said, I want you to start praying for divine appointments. The Holy Spirit will move people to come to you 
if you are willing to share Jesus with them. Divine appointments. God, give me a divine appointment with that girl in my class who I consider an enemy because all she wants to do is talk trash on me. But Father God, will you give me a divine appointment where I can actually show her grace in a moment of need? God, will you give me a divine appointment with that kid who gets bullied and picked on all of the time? Will you give me a a, a chance to advocate for him and speak up for him and make him feel like he's not an outcast? God, will you give me a divine appointment so that I can share my testimony because I was somebody who was ignored and dismissed my whole life until I met Jesus and he included me and now I want to share with that kid who feels dismissed and ignored that Jesus will include and use them as well. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for the privilege of getting to be your ambassadors. Help us to think on you and to act how you would act. It's an old school question, but we do need to think more often about what would Jesus do. Father God, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, these students in every single one of their situations would think, In this situation, in this thing that's frustrating me, with this individual, with this bully, with this outcast, God, I pray that our kids would stop fearing contamination of reputation by hanging out with outcasts, and they would show them compassion instead. I pray that they would wonder what Jesus would do in these situations. God, I just pray that you would start to put people's faces and and, and names in the hearts of every single one of these students right now, and that they would start praying over them in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and do that right now, students. If you want to come up and get at the altar and pray over these students, if you want to turn around and kneel at your chair, you can do it.